This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. As we head into the traditional season for charitable donations, Canadians are giving less. We'll talk about the impact. And a look back at the life and legacy of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A report into a long-term care home in suburban Montreal where dozens of residents died during the pandemic in March and April accuses the owners of organizational negligence. It concludes that authorities at Residence Heron repeatedly failed to address shortcomings noted in prior inspection reports and in a coroner's report, largely because of high staff turnover and lack of personnel at the residence. Author Sylvain Gagnon blames the province's health care system, which he says failed to ensure the problems were corrected. The equipment that arrives would include this board, so they put the board under the patient and begin chest compression. Professor Matthew Doomer at the University of Alberta and his team have created a new device that could quicken the process of performing CPR on COVID patients. Severe COVID patients can go into cardiac arrest, so instead of flipping them over, they can now slide a CPR board and perform compression while patients remain on their belly. By using the new CPR board, Dr. Doomer says doctors can limit their contact with a COVID patient. Donald Trump hasn't grown into the job because he can't. Barack Obama, who slammed the failures of Donald Trump during the Democratic National Convention, will release his memoir November 17th, two weeks after the U.S. election. A Promised Land covers his historic rise to the White House and his first term in office. The 59-year-old says at a time when America is going through enormous upheaval, the book offers some thoughts on how to heal the divisions and make democracy work for everyone. And everybody said it never lasts. The longest living married couple in the United States are celebrating their 85th anniversary this week. Ralph and Dorothy Kohler of Colorado got married as teenagers in 1935 when FDR was president. Ralph credits longevity in life and marriage to healthy habits. Neither of them has ever drank alcohol or smoked. And they share passions for ballroom dancing and clay target shooting. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's more fallout from the pandemic. At a time when the need is greater than ever, Canadians are giving less to charity. According to the Angus Reid Institute, 37% of donors who have given to at least one charity in the last two years have decreased their donations because of COVID-19. It adds up to a loss of hundreds of millions of dollars for the country's 86,000 charities. I reached Angus Reid's research director, Dave Krasinski. Were you surprised by this finding that 
two in five people who usually donate to charity are donating less? I don't think so. I think if, if you know, you thought about people's personal finances over the course of the last, uh, I guess we're up to almost seven months here, I think a lot of people would have anticipated this downward trend. And we've also seen some stories that, you know, the, the media has been picking this up, you know, calls from prominent charities saying, you know, we are in trouble. And you know, the federal government chipped in with $350 million of support in April. But that's, I think there's a lot of uh, gap to fill here. And, and as you mentioned, we, we asked people who are regular donors over the course of the last two years or so, and just said over the course of the last six months, has your giving changed? And, and two in five say that they are giving less. And just 9% are actually able to give more to try to bridge that gap. So there's, you know, that's four times uh, as, as many who are giving less as compared to those who are giving more. You have 9% of people who are giving more, but do you have any idea how much more they're giving or whether they've changed their focus? Uh, no, we didn't ask them specifically about the amounts. We did ask them if they're giving to the same charities. You know, among that super donor group, half of them say that they're giving to the same. Just 9% of them have, have changed the charities that they're giving to. So we, we don't have a, a quite of an idea, but, you know, those amounts that the super donors tend to give about $2,500 a year or more um, gives you an idea of, of what they're trying to kind of pitch in. I'm surprised that 2500 makes you a super donor. Yeah, I think that's that might be a, be a bit of a condemnation of the charitable sector in Canada that uh, that puts you in the super donor category, and that they they really are only twenty three percent of the population. So there, I think there's were challenges to begin with, and then this this COVID uh, crisis has really kind of exacerbated that. Do you have a demographic analysis? What age groups and or particular groups are giving, and how has the pandemic affected that? Yeah, so it it does tend to be, you know, older people who are in that, that super donor group. You know, they're a little bit more comfortable and have a little bit more stability. You know, when we look at job loss in this in this crisis, it is really that 18 to 34 cohort that have been hurt, hit really hard. They're, they're involved in precarious work to begin with. And if they do have, you know, a little bit of extra money, they're, they're largely not looking to donate it because they need it for themselves. So... It is uh, people that are, you know, 50 plus who are a little bit more financially stable and have some investments who are able to sustain this. And it's, it's younger people who are falling off. You mentioned those super donors, 2500 a year or more. What is their income range or where does it start? Yeah, they tend to be, um, you know, if you look at the 100000 per year range uh, for, for household income. So in a lot of cases, that's dual income. You get quite a substantial portion of them as being super donors or prompted donors, those those who are willing to give, but just kind of wait for messaging. Um, they'll see a, a campaign or a, a matching program that the federal government has offered, and that's when they'll chip in. They're, they're not necessarily on a monthly schedule. So those people tend to be in that $100,000 hundred or more range, and they tend to be older, you know, that 55-plus age group. Very few of them who are in the non-donor category, but they do have the highest levels of of both super donors and prompted donors. So just older with more expendable income and and I think a little bit more stability to be able to give in a time uh, when a lot of people are having a, a tough time just kind of paying the bills. 
Let's get to the weed charity scandal. How has that affected things? It certainly hasn't been a positive. If you look at the way that it is having Canadians kind of rethinking their donations, we do see some negative trends there. With the 57% of Canadians say when they think about this, these are, you know, among people who have been following it, which really is most Canadians. Uh, 57% of Canadians say that they think that the scandal has raised questions about transparency and governance and the, the management and, and uh, you know, administrative fees, the types of things that people often point to about charities that, that are poorly run. Um, they think that this is a, a, a broader conversation that actually points to problems in the whole charity sector in Canada, as opposed to just we. 36% say that they think this is just a we problem and it doesn't really change how they view charities. So when you've got more than half saying that it raises red flags for them, I think that's, that's a, certainly a negative and something that charities have to take on now in addition to their challenges. Now they have to really double down on their communication and focusing on the fact that they are well run. Have people started to take a closer look at those things? I mean, often people respond to an appeal and they don't look at it administrative costs or all the other costs associated with it. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things that can actually be spun as a bit of a positive out of this is that you've got a lot of people who look at this and say that they're taking a, a deeper look and this this has really caused them to pay more attention to who they're donating to. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, the fact that there's a little bit more scrutiny coming from donors uh, is a challenge, but it's also an opportunity, I think, to uh, convince people that you're actually doing things on the up and up and, and you're not one of the charities that we're, we have concerns about right now. And I think if you can make that point to potential donors, that's a really good starting point um, with a lot of the skepticism out there. Can you at all quantify how much loss comes from the We Charity scandal? If you've got 37% of people that are giving less, the range is about $10 billion that Canadians donate to charities in a year. So we are talking at least, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, even though we don't have a specific number for it. But when you've got such a large group that are stepping back because of the financial problems, and then it's exacerbated by the we charity problems, I think when we get those numbers next year about how much Canadians donated, they are going to be staggering, but we don't quite have a measure for that yet. Okay. That's uh, fascinating. Dave Korzynski, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. That was Dave Korzynski of the Angus Reid Institute. On Friday, the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg became the first woman to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. Before that, her body lay in repose at the Supreme Court. It culminated a distinguished career full of firsts, giving the public a chance to pay respects as the national outpouring of grief continued unabated since her death from pancreatic cancer on September 18th. It also deepened partisan divisions as Republicans moved to name a replacement before the November election. I'd like to revisit a 2018 interview with Julie Cohn and Betsy West, producers of the documentary RBG, starting with Bader Ginsburg herself reading famous words she used at her first Supreme Court argument. 
I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. It's a quote by the great advocate of women's rights and as well as civil rights, Sarah Moore Grimke. Very strong language, uh, get your feet off my neck. It was strong language when those words were originally written, even stronger and more surprising for a young woman lawyer in her first case before the U.S. Supreme Court facing nine imposing male justices to very powerfully speak those words in in the main chamber of the U.S. Supreme Court. You also take us back to her early days, and she was one of nine women in a class of 500 at Harvard Law School. Tell me about that. Well, Justice Ginsburg talks about the experience of being in such a tiny minority. The uh, law school dean called all the women together for a lovely dinner. Afterward, he sat them down and asked them one by one, why were they at the Harvard Law School taking a place uh, that could be occupied by a man? Um, as, as Justice Ginsburg describes it, it was a very unwelcome environment for the women who were there, and yet she went on the law review. She was a superstar from a very early age. How unusual was that to be on the law review? This was uh, in the late 50s. Uh, yeah, well, for I mean, a woman to be on the law review was extremely unusual. It's, uh, you know, the top 25 of the entire uh, Harvard Law School. So uh, that's quite an accomplishment. She then transferred to Columbia Law School because her husband had moved to New York. Uh, she graduated tied for first uh, at the top of her class, and yet when she got out into the job market, uh, she couldn't find a job uh, at a top law firm in New York because they just didn't hire women. So how did she get her start then? Well, she threw some arm twisting that one of her professors who really knew what a great student she had been, she did manage to get a clerkship for a federal judge. And then she moved on to Rutgers University, where she was a law professor, um, ultimately moved to Columbia University, where I believe she became the first woman tenured professor at the law school there. Does she have a case that she views as the most important one? Well, it was a series of cases. I'm not sure um, if one was any more important than the other. She particularly likes the case of a young widower, Stephen Weisenfeld, who discovered that uh, he could not get Social Security benefits to take care of his infant child after his wife had died in childbirth because those benefits were considered a mother's benefit. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg took this case of a young man who was discriminated against by gender-based laws. And that was a rousing decision um, and, and a uh, unanimous decision, or eight to one, I think it was an eight to one decision, and uh, certainly paved the way for making the U.S. Constitution apply much more equally to both men and women. And she did it by taking a man as a client. So I think she, she likes that case a lot. Any others that she would consider her landmark or most, most important? The case of Virginia Military Institute where which had been a 150-year-old um, military institute that had been closed to women entirely. There was a case that was brought that because the, uh, the, that institution received federal funding, that it should be open to both men and women. It was argued 
before the Supreme Court early in Justice Ginsburg's tenure as a Supreme Court justice. And she actually wrote the ruling where that opened up this old school military institute to women. What about her familial relationships? When we started making this film, we knew that Justice Ginsburg had had a long and happy marriage to her late husband, Marty Ginsburg, but we had absolutely no idea of the importance of that marriage uh, for both her personal happiness and her professional success. Marty Ginsburg was a man ahead of his time. He was himself a very accomplished tax lawyer, and yet he understood that he was married to a brilliant woman. And when she started bringing these cases in the early 70s, you know, attacking the discriminatory laws in our country, he realized that she was on a trajectory that might take her to the Supreme Court. And uh, he supported her whole hog. He um, bragged about how smart she was when they were at Harvard Law School together. He took over more of the responsibility at home when her career was taking off in the 70s. When she became a federal judge, he gave up his job in New York and moved down to Washington. And then when there was an opening on uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, it was Marty Ginsburg, who was a very well-liked and very connected lawyer, who lobbied uh, for his wife to be considered by President Clinton to go on that court. I mean, she really credits Marty with so much of her success. And uh, we just love uh, their romance. They were uh, teenage sweethearts, and she said he was the first yeah. boy that ever cared that she had a brain. That's yes, right. Exactly. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> yeah, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, as a young woman, as you'll see in the home movies in our film, was an extraordinarily beautiful young lady. Uh, she went to Cornell University, so did Marty. They were there at a time when the ratio of men to women was four to one. So needless to say, she really had her pick of guys. But pretty early on, she found Marty. They fell madly in love, and they were sort of a propelling factor for one another throughout their whole careers, their lives, and their beautiful 56-year marriage. How did she come to be a pop culture icon in her 80s? I mean... Who would have expected that? Starting in summer of 2013, she wrote a series of very strongly worded and yet very understandable to non-lawyers dissents in which a justice who is not in the majority can basically speak out and say why they think that the decision that the court has made is, is wrong. And her words just struck a chord with young people. In talking about some protections that were being taken or going to be taken away, some protections of the Voting Rights Act, she made the remark, it's like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And it just, you know, to, to say that a Supreme Court dissent goes, went viral seems kind of weird, but it did. That was Julie Cohn and Betsy West, producers of the 2018 documentary on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.
Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.